0: Welcome to ground up. If we are to protect our hard fought progress and development in cyberspace, geospace and space, in short referred to as CGS, managing and building resilience needs to be a priority for entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA. Nations will thrive when all of its components know how to build resilience. The ability of a nation to be resilient and its effectiveness depends upon all its components' ability to anticipate, absorb, adapt to, and uh, rapidly recover from any potential disruptive event in cyberspace, geospace, and space. Since risk, resilience, and security walk hand in hand, it is important to understand how to manage security risk from cyberspace, geospace, and space. For a nation to be resilient in CGS, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space, necessitates all of its components to be resilient. Any attempt to reduce the risk in CGS is towards building resilient nation. Since each decision and action impacts the level of resilience in CGS, The perceptions of and choices made about security risk will likely shape how individuals and entities across NGIOA will behave, how they will respond during and after a security event irrespective of CGS and how they will plan for future security in CGS. Understanding security risk from cyberspace, geospace and space is therefore fundamental to nation's resilience and security. To discuss resilience and security further. I am honored to welcome Professor Daniel Aldrich to Risk Professor Daniel is the Director of the Resilience and Security Studies Program at Northeastern University. He is also the author of several books on resilience. The book Site Fights, Controversial Facilities and Civil Society in Japan and West focuses on how states handle conflict over controversial facilities like nuclear power plants, airports, and dams. The book Building Resilience investigates how social capital facilitates recovery following disasters. Welcome, Professor Daniel. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful, Professor Daniel. So let's start our discussion with the state of resilience. Resilience, that is the ability to overcome challenges from cyberspace, geospace and space, is fundamental to develop security protection mechanism for nations. How would you describe the state of resilience across nations today?
1: I think it's getting better, but we've got a long way to go. And I think the reality is that for many of us, whether as businesses, academic institutions or individuals, most of us don't really think that far in the future our focus is much more short and medium term goals. Have I paid my mortgage? Are my employees coming to work on time? Have I gotten my assignments done? We don't really think longer term, what if there's flooding like we've seen in a number of cities right now in Japan? Uh, what about the risk, for example, of broader civil wars like that could happen in Syria over time? What about longer-term risks, whether an EMP pulse for North Korea or being compromised in terms of cybersecurity? So I think we are more conscious now in 2017 than we have been in past years about the kind of risks that are there. I don't think we're doing enough as individuals, communities, or the nation to really prepare ourselves for those kind of threats.
0: You know, you are right, and I'm so glad to hear that, that we are getting, uh, we are acknowledging that we are becoming conscious because resilient nation, the challenges like you just, you know, mentioned are so complex. While we have to be concerned about short-term, you know, our task and short-term risk, and we have to manage those risks, but our eyes need to be on the long-term horizon. We have to look at the overall broader, you know, security challenges or strategic security that we all are facing and resilient nations do not just... We just don't rely on traditional technology solutions like if it's cyberspace, let's, you know, just focus on firewalls in cyberspace. And if it's geospace, let's just focus on security guards in geospace and processes. We have to have a very complex understanding about what would get us to the resilient state that we are looking at. And any nation's ability to withstand any disruption from cyberspace or because of cyberspace in geospace and space. Impacts its ability to conduct its operation, governance processes, and advancement. So, what does resilience mean to different nations or different components of a nation?
1: So, at the very basic level, of resilience would mean the recognition that the real power to an organization or a community isn't the power to have one disaster and to still be there. For example, a flood or a fire, or let's say data storage or data stolen from a computer. Resilience is the ability of the organization or the community to bounce back from an event and to learn from it. I think this is the aspect that many organizations nowadays are exploring. I know right now, for example, in North America and across the world, the Resilient Cities Program has begun pushing that at the city level, not the nation state quite yet, but at the city level, so Bombay, Bangladesh, Tokyo, uh, Jakarta, a number of other nations around the world, Cape Town, South Africa, San Francisco, are are talking about what kind of threats do we face here on a regular basis, or even an irregular basis. Uh, For example, in uh, Seattle, in North America, the likelihood of a tsunami and an earthquake are quite high. But again, that's not a traditional risk that they've talked about. So this program is pushing cities to think through the broader risks that they might face and the kind of programs that can overlay all the kinds of risks. So rather than just want building one kind of infrastructure, let's say if you know a tsunami is coming, building a seawall, that's helpful if you only have a tsunami, but the seawall itself might be vulnerable to the earthquake or the seawall itself might trap flooding inside. It might also make people inside less likely to evacuate. Maybe it'll change behaviors of people who are vulnerable to the tsunami. So thinking through now, not just one risk at a time, or one threat at a time, but the broader, let's call them, portfolio of risks that we might face, and the kinds of processes, governance processes, physical infrastructure processes, cybersecurity, but also social infrastructure. Uh, in a lot of my own work has focused on the role, not just of physical infrastructure, like levees and dams and firewalls, but also the people in those communities, the people in those organizations, What kind of social connections are there? What kind of communication is established well? What's not going so well? And a lot of our work has been trying to figure out how do we see resilience developing more effectively when those social ties are stronger?
0: Yes, no, that is a very good point. And uh, I'm glad to hear that the city at the city level at least you know those uh, kind of efforts are being made to be prepared to be resilient because those cities that you just talked about you know in Bangladesh and in India and uh, other places they are more at risk from these natural you know, disasters that could come their way because of uh, the uh, changes that are happening in the climate but we are also not just talking about uh, having the resilience of, towards the natural you know disaster there are so many man made disasters coming our way right. through cyberspace and through you know space but right now the challenge is that we are uh, hopefully let's uh, not face those challenges but it looks like we are going towards that from korea that is going to you know bring us the risk of uh, emp electromagnetic pulse and the nuclear disaster you specialize in nuclear resilience what is your take on north korea's nuclear situation Do you think the United States is resilient to North Korea nuclear threat?
1: This is a really challenging question because, of course, the information provided by North Korea often is exaggerated in the same way that the threats they're making now against North America really aren't new. We've really heard these threats almost over 55 years now, uh, since the end of the Korea armistice and the Korean War, North Korea, South Korea and America really have not exchanged information directly in the way that other countries provide information about economic progress, for example, or about population density or about cities. North Korea has really been a hermit nation, a hiding itself deliberately from what we would normally understand to be going on, that is to share information, to share trade borders and so forth. So I think good estimates are there is a possibility that North Korea has developed a nuclear weapon, a miniaturized nuclear warhead, which could be fitted to an ICBM. Uh, Right now, the ICBM could possibly reach Alaska or parts of the West Coast. Uh, and then if you really want to push the scenario, the most uh, improbable possible would be that uh, some some people have forecast the possibility of an EMP pulse detonating over North America. Uh, that would, of course, damage basically every device that we rely on now, uh, from GPS trackers and trucks, cell phones that we use, the computer I'm talking to you on right now. Um, the vast majority of electronic devices, electro- electronic cars, trucks, buildings, factories would be affected by that. I think the good news, though, right now um, is that, first of all, the rhetoric we're hearing from North Korea uh, is in line with past behavior from them. That is to say, this is not some new threat. either Because of President Trump or in response to him, it's not a new threat uh, in response to, for example, the exercises that have been going on off North Korea. Again, that's a regular thing. Um, But these kind of threats, and and it's unfortunate that North Korea relies on them regularly, um, are quite normal. I remember, for example, when I lived in Japan in the early 2000s, Several times that year, North Korea told Japan it'd be reduced to a sea of fire, literally the language they used to reduce you to a sea of fire. So that's the kind of language you really don't see most developed nations using nowadays in 2017, maybe for hundreds of years. Um, but North Korea, as you mentioned, their diplomacy levels are not on par, let's say, with South Korea or the country. So I think there is a possibility that uh, North Korea has the technologies that would be there. But I think even for them, the motivation is maybe different. We, we see them right now as a threat. What I've seen in the past, though, is that North Korea has used leverages like a threat to get things from other countries. Uh, for example, right now, we've cut off access to trade. Even coal and mineral resources have been cut off. Uh, in many ways, North Korea, I think, is threatening and posturing right now, not because they intend on launching an ICBM, but rather because they hope to get from South Korea, China and North America a return to the negotiating table some kind of material benefits from the process.
0: Yes, so it seems, but at the same time, should we allow any nation whose governance model is not mature to have this kind of weapons and make ourselves vulnerable? It may be a tactic, you know, just to get what they want, like you just said, but I still feel that, you know, we cannot have that kind of risk or we cannot have that kind of vulnerability, you know, as far as our nation's progress uh, and development goes and our uh, infrastructure and all of our systems in cyberspace, geospace and space to be vulnerable to something uh, like that from any nation, not just North Korea, but any nation. So it, it is, uh, it will be interesting to see how we go forward and how we become resilient to this kind of uh, security vulnerabilities and security challenges coming our way, but while managing or minimizing risk is an important part of the resilient equation, and like we are trying to do with North Korea, and like we are trying to do with many other rogue nations or many other uh, um, groups or uh, organizations who are trying to uh, bring threats to United States or trying to bring threats to uh, any nation. Uh, Decision makers need to think about rapid advances in technology in the context of the progress and development to consider the appropriate trade offs between resilience and risk to innovation and growth. Now, the innovation that is happening in cyberspace and space and geospace, while it is, you know, very promising and it gives us a huge potential for our economic growth, our uh, scientific growth, it also brings us a lot of vulnerabilities because the technology that gives us the power and uh, promise, it also brings us the perils of security risk. So when it comes to strategic security risk and resilience, are the nations and its component resilient from your assessment?
1: That's a great question. And I, and I think part of this is the idea that it's true what you said, that of course we want no nation having the ability to disrupt our country's daily life, that is to say we don't want any country, um, whether let's say terrorist groups uh, based in Africa or in the Middle East or a country like North Korea to be able to threaten us, at some level the, the burden is on us as a nation, and maybe even more specifically on both taxpayers and politicians to think through what would the costs be to ensure we have a country that would be resilient, let's say, to an EMP pulse. And there's an interesting study about this exact question, which is to say we know there are technologies out there that can, in a sense, armor our electrical grid and make it much less vulnerable to any people's. Uh, the challenge is the basic cost for transforming our system would be a, a $24 billion as a starting point. Now, the reality is that that cost is very small if you think about the actual cost of a disaster. So this happens all the time, and this is one of the reasons I like thinking about the politics of resilience. We could invest right now in 2017, that $24 billion to upgrade our transformers, to upgrade our electrical grid and make it secure. Or we could not, right? We could keep spending as we are. If there really is an attack from North Korea that comes, the cost of recovering will be far greater than $24 billion. We're probably $24 billion a week uh, in terms of lost revenues and you know, medical costs and the deaths from people who are electrically dependent, all that kind of stuff. The question is, how do you develop the political will to invest that $24 billion, either from the private, private sector, a private-public partnership, from rate-payer increases, what can we do? And we can think of other examples like this. In North in North America, about 10 years ago, uh, nuclear power companies, like Exelon, for example, said we need a more reliant grid, a grid that's more stable, more baseline power, nuclear power will be the way to do that. And a number of companies began investing in what are very expensive capital outlays for nuclear power plants. Typical costs are around a billion dollars nowadays. And the time frames in their mind was around twenty five to thirty years of building. Well, you probably heard just two weeks ago, most of those plans were canceled. Uh, because the firm Westinghouse, uh, which was responsible for much of the planning and management for those construction projects, went bankrupt itself. There was no capital flow in, and the cost of com- competing energy sources has dropped. So, for example, LNG, liquid natural gas, is so inexpensive now. So, that initial billion dollar investment has cost in some cases over $1.4 billion, and there's nothing to show for it. They invested in a technology they thought would make the grid more stable, more baseline power, a longer term output, and it didn't work out. So these are the kind of challenges we have. Um, Obviously, nuclear power in America is a commercial firm. It's a market-based mechanism. Ensuring the grid, ensuring the systems that we have, we call these lifeline systems, right? So electricity, for example, is among them. Ensuring those lifeline systems are resilient will cost money now upfront uh, and it will save money in the long term. Who do we convince? Who do we have to talk to as a nation? Is it politicians? Is it the firms themselves? Is it ratepayers? Uh, for example, would you and I be willing to pay 10% more in our electricity bills to build more resilient grids in our backyards, whether it's at the city level or the regional level? We, we might be willing to pay 10%. Or we might push back and say, well, look, we're already paying a lot. Um, You know, let's push off this to the future. I think the reality is with that political will, building resilient societies um, will be a very much piecemeal area. So individual cities, like we mentioned already, maybe San Francisco or Seattle, maybe New York and New Orleans at the city level, they might work pretty hard to build up those infrastructures, social, physical, cyberspace. But you might have a regional area, maybe beyond New Orleans, let's say Mississippi, Uh, Louisiana, states nearby, they simply don't have the money right now to invest in making themselves more resilient to a man-made or natural disaster. And what you might find is New New Orleans is developing resilience, but the area nearby is not. We've actually seen this a number of times. We had an exercise here in Boston. We looked at a number of the firms operating in the port area and just had them think through a scenario when we either lost power because of a hurricane or had some kind of natural disaster that cut off access. Some of them had their own internal resilience plans. For example, data storage offsite, ensuring personnel have a way to get to physical facilities, long-term redundancy in various planning. But they didn't have planning with other companies that gave them critical infrastructure. So for example, maybe the airport already has fuel, but that fuel will come from offshore. The only way to get it there is through a working electricity system. So if you lose power, you can't get fuel in. Or maybe the bridges nearby themselves, which control access, are also powered by a few relatively weak links. So we can think through not just making individual pieces and components resilient, but the entire system as a whole more resilient to those kind of attacks.
0: That is the key that we cannot think in silos. We have to think about the entire system and that makes it so much more essential in this you know, very complex age that we are going through, That all the components of a nation work together, irrespective of whether it's government, industries, organizations, and academia. And you made a very uh, fair point that, you know, the, the cost of managing crisis is so much more than the cost of managing risk. And right now, we would like to invest into, we should be investing, each nation should be investing in making all their systems resilient. Because if we don't do that, Then you know the cost is going to be so much uh, more unbearable, and the progress and advances that we are uh, rapidly going through right now, we will you know fall behind. We'll go back probably several decades uh, as far as you know the uh, complex security risks that are coming our way. But another challenge is that we each organization, if we talk about it, or each nation, they have finite resources, and. If we talk about organization, right now they are so, all the resources are going towards compliance management and they are going towards managing their operational and legal risk. There is very little left for them to, even focus on uh, thinking about the strategic security risk. And that is a big challenge because all the resources are tied up and they don't have any more resources to focus about, you know, what the challenges could be coming to their way, you know, strategically, not only from the disaster perspective, but also from the innovation perspective that would make their uh, business models, governance models, management models of products and services obsolete in the coming years. So that is another, you know, big uh, challenge we are facing is that there is no focus on the strategy security risk. There is not much that is happening. Decision makers are not focusing on that. So how do nations prepare for uncertainty in CGS, and how how can they become resilient if they are not focusing on the strategic security risk? And one of the key functions of nations and its decision makers has historically been to balance risk against progress and advancement and its impact on national security. Now, amidst the changing reality of the security risk emerging from the cyberspace, geospace and space, how does the current roles and responsibilities of NGI decision makers change? Because they have been so used to doing things in a different way. But now they need to, do, they need to make their decisions, they need to make their uh, role and responsibility very different. What, uh, how do you think that their roles and responsibilities are changing?
1: This is a big challenge. And I think we've seen the reality is that for the political will to be there, for decision makers to take seriously investing taxpayers' dollars, in these ideas of managing risk before it comes, as opposed to waiting to a disaster. The reality is it takes a crisis. I'm just thinking, for example, out loud here, but we know in North America, for many, many years, uh, airline security was handled by a mix of private and public sectors. Uh, after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, we built a brand new bureaucracy We had 43 separate agencies, including FEMA, uh, what was then the precursor to the TSA, and we built this massive thing called Homeland Security. Now, the Homeland Security uh, bureaucracy is large, it is somewhat redundant in some cases, and some I'd say kind of slow moving as well. So this massive crisis caused a shift in our normal strategy. And I, and I think we call this often the punctuated equilibrium model, that we have a very long period of time when nothing really changes. We ignore threats. We ignore possible risks. Then something really bad happens, a 9-11 terrorist attack. And then you see this blip. And the company, the countries, the, the organizations involved change strategy, and then we have a new one. It could be right that the only way that our decision makers will take seriously these kind of risks, whether it's cyber, physical, uh, natural disaster, or man-made disaster, will come from some kind of massive catastrophe. We saw, for example, FEMA did change after Hurricane New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans uh, back in 2005. They did change how they interacted with their local residents. They changed their procedures for filling out paperwork. Uh, Japan right now has shifted some of its nuclear safety changes after uh, Fukushima. Uh, I think the reality is it often takes, unfortunately a massive crisis before we change our standard procedures. We, again, are kind of blind. You know, there's a lot of studies that show the costs of managing risk are much lower, maybe six or seven times lower than managing catastrophe afterwards. So often, for example, USAID or FEMA, these organizations on the front lines of disaster planning will say, if we only had invested a few dollars more ahead of time, we would have saved ourselves you know, $100 million in evacuation costs and finding shelter, temporary food and water for, for these communities that are now evacuees. And of course, if you want to take one specific example, in Japan's case, the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster, that was a very preventable disaster. Of course, the earthquake itself was not preventable, the tsunami was not preventable, but the meltdowns at the nuclear power plants, one through three, those are completely preventable. And again, we have the technologies already to do so. Uh, this is not, it's very simple things. It's things like higher sea walls, uh, more redundancy in the firefighting equipment, making sure that we have better training for the people operating the plants. A number of the reasons that they went, they melted down was because of mismanagement, a lack of understanding. So in many cases, I think these, especially man-made disasters, um, you know, investing more in personnel, investing in communications, in trust, thinking through what are the real risks, nuclear power plant could face. Tepco admitted. Oh, sorry. Please
0: go ahead. No, very true. You're absolutely right about that because those are the challenges. But do we? Do we all? Just need to focus on the governments and the agencies that they could create the power that they have in investing the uh, taxpayers dollars or all the components needs to be prepared because it's not just the government. We cannot depend on the government for our security anymore because of the changes that are happening. There was a time that we were able to trust the government and uh, trust, the, trust the government agencies in keeping us secure. But because of the changes coming from the cyberspace and uh, the computer code and connected computer has changed the reality of it. Each organization, each entity is on its own. We cannot depend. Each component of a nation is on its own. We cannot depend on government for to, you know, make us secure. So what will you tell nations and the NGO decision makers as to the complexity of security risks they're facing today due to cyberspace?
1: So it's funny, we have some models of how public and private can work together in areas like cyberspace, but they're kind of old models. Uh, One of them is the Federal Reserve Bank. You know, a lot of us think about the Federal Reserve Bank as a government agency doing regulation. The reality is it's not. It's actually a public-private partnership private banks report information to the government itself, which has members on the on the committees, but also they're informed by those private firms. So I think cybersecurity is a great example. It might require government leadership to establish, let's say, regulations, frameworks, expectations for standards, but of course it will take individual firms, and here I'm talking both about the firms that themselves design firewalls, virus protection software, and intrusion software, but also broader firms. Right, Think about Sony Corporation, uh, entertainment firms, firms like IBM or, or hospitals. Right, These are all firms with data that's at risk from uh, either deliberate intrusions from other countries, from ransomware, for example, or even just typical viruses. I think the Federal Reserve Bank model is a good one. Um, there we had a very clear idea, and this is 100 years ago now in North America, that we knew the risks that the firms like banks would face. And of course, we have faced risks. We had the Great Depression in North America in the 1920s and 1930s, and the Fed's job was to get information from private firms, work out some kind of standard, and then try to be a a steady leadership over time. I think cybersecurity is another area where this could work quite well. No government agency has the kind of resources and innovation and ingenuity that private firms have. That's just simply the reality. We know in, case it can, in some cases it'd be two you know, high school dropouts with seven lines of code in their garage that have an idea that will rock the world much more effectively than some national government agency would. But those uh, coders, those firms, whether it's for example, Facebook, which now has more members on its platform than any other network. I mean, think about it, you know, roughly right now, a fifth to a sixth of the world is on the internet. Right. In, in these kind of platforms, think about the power that they have and a partnership that Facebook can do, for example, uh, or, or other firms like Twitter or Instagram. Now those are firms that reach a lot of people. Um, you know, we can think through what can they do to encourage individual behaviors that are more cyber secure, but also improving standards overall. We know that a lot of choices are made by, by firms, how our personal data is handled. Uh, I used to be a government employee. Uh, I know back in, two th- in the 2000s, uh, hackers actually stole my, my information uh, and released it. We don't know where. And since then, the government had to manage my personal identity problems. And of course, I'm one in millions of employees. Um, that's the kind of problem that we shouldn't have. You know, we should recognize, just like a nuclear power plant operating a firm, recognizing the, the risk environment think through what are the worst-paced scenarios and how do we build internal-external ties to get information, but also to be upfront. We know many firms never report cybersecurity crimes. Many firms, especially small businesses and even larger ones, are afraid. Maybe their clients will leave them if they talk openly about data, uh, data breaches. Maybe they'll uh, be investigated by the government. We know a lot of cyber crimes are not reported uh, with ransomware as well. Uh, there, there are solutions to ransomware. They're coming out slowly. But if firms don't talk about the challenges they've had with other firms, then that communication will take place and we'll have no sharing information. So here's, in my mind, another area where the social infrastructure that we have. Is there trust between firms and the government? Will they talk to each other and share best practices? Can we think through what are the kind of threats we can face in this field and think of ways that both sides, the public sector and the private sector, can build solutions?
0: Yes, absolutely. We have to build solutions and we need to have uh, interconnected, interdependent frameworks where everyone, you know, can come together and uh, uh, have collective sort of, you know, intelligence and decision-making capability. But to be able to understand what is at risk and how to be resilient, NGO decision-makers must first know what assets they are protecting. Do the decision-makers understand the true nature of the assets they are protecting today?
1: You know, I'd like to say yes. I think the reality is sometimes there's a disconnect between the people at the top making the highest level decisions and the individuals on the ground seeing both the resources they have and the threat environment. I think that gap, unfortunately, oftentimes causes big problems. And again, TEPCO is a good example. Certainly the engineers at the plant who know the plant's workings know very well its vulnerabilities as well. But TEPCO, that is to say the Tokyo Electric Power Company as a whole, had what I call a safety myth in place. The leadership refused to acknowledge that there were threats like a 15-meter tsunami, a 45-foot wave that could breach existing defenses. There are a number of memos that we found from lower-level engineers to the senior leadership warning them of these kind of risks that were ignored. So, I mean, I would love to imagine in every corporation and every agency, government or private sector alike, that the local frontline people and the managers are speaking openly about risks. I think the reality is that oftentimes people at the top have different priorities. We talked before about short-term, medium and long-term thinking. You know, some firms are really only thinking about the next quarterly earnings results. They only want investors to see positive outcomes, and for them, any negative news, reporting a security breach, talking about possible threats they might face, thinking through the future about the kind of investments they'll need to make to keep secure, that might see to them to be a negative choice. I remember there was a study uh, by McAvoy, about one firm in North America, a a power management firm, that literally decided it would reduce the number of maintenance requests at its firms rather than have a possible stock hit in the next quarter. And that firm unfortunately had to go offline for a number of months to fix the problems that built up in their attempt to save money. So you might say with the old adage, you know, penny wise, pound foolish, you're saving money perhaps in the short term. But should you face any real risk, um, the decision makers' choices to ignore those possible threats To not invest in mitigation strategies can certainly have massive consequences. TEPCO has basically been bankrupt now in Japan, now for almost a decade. Sorry, since 2011, almost six years, um, because of the lack of investment in mitigation strategies.
0: Yes, no, that is very true. And uh, if we talk about cyberspace, how do the decision makers understand risk and resilience in the context of cybersecurity, or how does uh, how do the decision makers under if we talk about the space and how do they understand risk and resilience in terms of space security because space is also becoming so important for each and every uh, entity or each and every individual now so how what is the relationship between risk and resilience uh, as they understand you know as the decision makers understand and as we would like them to understand
1: And the challenge is sometimes our leaders are sort of fighting old wars. Their knowledge, their their mental maps of the challenges they face, whether it's in space or cyberspace, might come from older geopolitical kind of battles. And in their mind, this is about planting a flag, or it's about some other physical metaphor that doesn't apply so well uh, when you move past those physical boundaries. So in in my mind, the first thing you always want to do is educate. Uh, and this is across the levels. Now, part of the things we do here at Northeastern is we have a program, the Security Resilience Program, that tries to train young students to think through what kind of threats might they face in cyberspace or in space, and not just the short-term, again, daily attacks, but long-term, what might we see with the Internet of Things, for example? What kind of risks will we face if your refrigerator has a server, if your air conditioner has a server? Um, What kind of vulnerabilities will will the home have in the future or a car have in the future then? And how do we think about those risks against current day technologies and future attacks. Same thing with with space as well. We try to get our students to think through what are the possible range of risks, governance risks, uh, long-term risks from debris, for example, changes in technologies, how we think through. And I think the the first stage we have to ask our decision makers and ourselves to do is to simply learn as much as they can about the scenario. Um, Oftentimes leaders are chosen because they're charismatic, because they're popular, because they did something at a previous firm. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in these firms that's changing every day. One of my advisors told me that basically every day there's a new terabyte of papers being published on science. Just keeping up with the information itself, understanding what's going on even in your own field can be a real challenge. And I think that the problem would be if a decision maker were stuck with a model of his or her firm that were outdated and didn't reflect the kind of realities they might face today.
0: Yes, no, very true. Now, while well, the question of how resilience can be measured, including its all associated metrics, has been addressed by so many different, you know, organizations, so many different sources. One important point question is that do we have a standard approach to measuring resilience or uh, understanding uh, the parameters around it?
1: So there have been a number of attempts by uh, academic institutions, but also more philanthropic ones to develop resilient standards. I think we're moving forward pretty well. We mentioned before the resilient cities, I think it's called 100 resilient cities, 100RC. Uh, They've done a lot of work on at the city level, how do you measure this mix of physical infrastructure and social infrastructure that's in place, whether it's in Mumbai or in Tokyo? Uh, we also know that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has done a lot of work uh, measuring resilience at the individual and community levels and building frameworks for seeing what's going on. We also have people like Susan Cutter, who's an academic at South Carolina, who's done work on, on the BRIC, BRIC, which is a broad set of resilience indicators that can be used for both county level measures in North America, but also even for city and state levels and foreign countries. So we have a number of different frameworks, uh, at least from the academic perspective, that can measure resilience. I think for decision makers though, those are almost irrelevant. What's really going to matter to them is if there's some kind of event, whether it's a nuclear meltdown, a terror attack, a data storage, a theft problem, what kind of bounce back will there be? I think for many decision makers, these indices seem almost too too abstract, let's say, too far removed from the day-to-day life. You know, for a business, let's say a typical small business in North America, if there's ransomware, their idea of resilience is they can ignore the calls for ransom and have safe backup data and it get operational within an hour or two. That would be resilience for them. For a city facing extreme snowfall, like Boston does several times, their idea of resilience, of course, would be having cars back on the road, having the buses and subways and trains running again quickly afterwards. So we have to think through, when we say resilience, for each organization, for each level of analysis, there are different kinds of things they are looking for. You know, I know certainly as, as a parent, resilience for me means if my kids have an accident, I know if they get into problems with another kid, they have the skills they need to extricate themselves from that problem to get on their feet again and go forward. So I think it's important to think through, you know, what organizations do we have in mind when we talk about resilience? And resilience to what? Um, is it resilience to, for example, evacuation, as we've seen in Japan? Um, we had 175,000 people leave their homes near a nuclear power plant. It was a pretty good evacuation. Maybe that isn't the measure we want to use, though, for resilience. Maybe the better measure is, are those 175,000 people, do they have jobs again? Are their kids back in schools? Do they have permanent housing? Um, that might be a better measure than, could we evacuate them from harm's way? Maybe evacuation isn't the focus. Maybe it's going to be the long-term, six-month, six-year recovery times. Are they reproductive again? Are they back in their normal lives and rhythms? So I think that's the challenge that I see in my field. Um, You know, what can we do in the processes to think through, you know, the organizations, whether it's a community or a firm, and then what kind of threats do they face specifically? Um, That might be quite different depending on, Bangladesh you mentioned before, Bangladesh certainly has a flooding problem a number of times, but we also know there are other problems too, which could be things like pandemics and disease. So maybe for Bangladesh, resilience their main investment should be things like bioterrorism, making sure we have doctors, uh, borders, levies, ways of handling flooding, uh, and then putting those together. How do we make sure the hospitals themselves are then resilient? How do we make sure medical providers can operate even in the midst of a natural disaster?
0: No, that's a great point, and uh, you made some really interesting points in uh, this discussion. That Number one is we have frameworks and tools And uh, while we have all these frameworks and tools, do we have enough understanding, enough awareness, enough education and awareness about the uh, need for resilience or how to be resilient? That's one point. And you made another very interesting point about the bioterrorism. And that really concerns me because now we are at a point because of the advances in synthetic biology and tools like CRISPR technology, Anybody, any terrorist or any individual who wants to create harm, they can create an organism, a virus, or you know, bacteria or anything from scratch, and they can release it in um, any nation's surroundings. And we we don't have the capability yet to quickly identify or to quickly come up with a response to that. So that we being resilient to bioterrorism is going to be a very complex challenge in the coming years because of the advances that we have in technology. So. Uh, Although, those, you know, uh, nuclear terrorism, bioterrorism, nano weapons, and space weapons and cyber weapons, they are complex challenges. But as you said, you know, we do need to create that education and awareness. So, where, what steps should any nation take to cultivate a culture of risk aware and risk adjusted decision making that is so very needed right now?
1: Yes, and I think there are several steps. And the first step is thinking through, you know, oftentimes we've trained di- disaster planners, disaster managers, to think through one kind of threat. So, for example, if I run a hospital, maybe my biggest threat I face uh, is electricity being turned off. And my only response would be backup generators. But there might be complex threats that might happen. For example, maybe gas lines will be cut off. Uh, maybe there'll be an accident outside my hospital. The entrance will be compromised. Maybe my doctors themselves can't get in and thinking through a more complex scenario for organizations. What kind of threats, multiple layers of threats, might we face? We mentioned before a port, for example, having threats both from a lack of electricity, but also maybe from a deliberate terror attack that's trying to slow down economic progress there at the port. So how do we handle a multiple level? This happened in Japan with the earthquake, tsunami and nuclear meltdowns. Literally three ongoing disasters at the same time, they affected over 6 million people. But that's the kind of thing we have to think through. The other thing, also, I think it's important, is the decision makers uh, begin recognizing the need for infrastructure investment and resilience. I think this has been a big problem in North America, time after time. The ASCE, the uh, structural engineers, have given us very low grading, very low grades for the quality of our bridges, roads, ports, and so forth. And oftentimes, whether it's a public or private entity running those infrastructure, investing in them is a really hard sell. So convincing them that these kind of investments are really important. And I think the third level then is also thinking about the system of systems. So here we have to talk not just about the physical things on the ground. Do we have enough anthrax uh, vaccine, for example? Do we have enough doctors on the ground? Do we have hospitals that are operating? But also, what are the communications that we use? How will we know if there really is a threat? How do we communicate that, for example, to the caretakers themselves? How do we get people in society then to move on that? We saw this here in North America. We had very few cases of Ebola that came back from West Africa, for example, from Sierra Leone and Guinea. Very few cases, I think maybe just two or three. But the response to them really missed the boat, right? Most North Americans were not at risk. Uh, Very few of them were, but the hospitals that had those Ebola patients had a massive amount of things to handle. They had a lot of panic. health workers themselves didn't necessarily have good training. They had all kinds of media gawkers nearby not requests for information, much more communication with other hospitals. So I think that those are the kind of challenges you have to think through. However unlikely an Ebola attack or anthrax attack would be, the few times we've actually faced those kind of small-scale bioterrorism challenges, I think we haven't had very good responses. And in my mind, those moments are the best times to really test the system. Are we ready as a nation for a larger-scale pandemic? You know, We had one nurse in Texas, and more or less that whole area shut down, uh, who was exposed. You know, what can we do about that? What are we thinking through? The other thing we've noticed in our program here at Northeastern, that oftentimes decision makers aren't communicating with each other. So you might have several firms that rely on each other's services. So again, uh, lifeline infrastructure, things like gas, electricity, communications, aren't talking to each other, but what would happen? in a worst case scenario? If a deliberate attack or a man-made disaster, how would they communicate with each other? How do they know what they need? What happens if cell phones go down? we had in New Orleans, for example, all cell phone towers, the battery is down to 24 hours. How do you communicate then if cell phones are down and landlines are down? Do you have satellite phones in most of your offices? Do you have the phone numbers of people that you need to be able to reach? Is there an emergency plan that you use for offsite relocation if your building is compromised? So I think many firms, whether small, medium or large, haven't thought through that broader question. Okay, we need these resources to operate. What happens if these don't come in? How do we do things next? You see this in supply chain management as well, uh, in, in, especially in Southeast Asia, When we had the the tsunami and earthquake in Japan, a number of car manufacturers in Thailand and India were affected by that. So that meant jobs. So again, maybe no one in India was touched by the earthquake, but now you have 10,000 people out of work for a few weeks because the parts aren't coming in, which means those cars aren't getting built. So you have these very complex, I I think of them as trickle-down effects, but also ripple effects at the same time that we haven't talked about. And I think that's the next stage for us in terms of resilience thinking
0: yes absolutely and that's a very very interesting point i see that this is such a complex challenge and if, if this is a, our nations most of the nations they have capitalistic system so while they are you know or identifying risk or threats they are not willing to share that information communicate that information to other to other you know businesses to other you know entities or industries or nations they are not sharing that information because they are still competing and right. to them, competition and you know profit is more important because, and uh, they are willing to talk, the entities, organizations are willing to talk about what is uh, available in public domain, but they are not willing to share their information, the intelligence that they have got through their own sources. And that is a big challenge because uh, our society is now, has interconnected and interdependent risk. So irrespective of geographical location, any localized disruption in cyberspace or through cyberspace in geospace and space can rapidly trigger a cascading sequence of events that can cause widespread disasters across entire CGS networks and systems. They're all connected, cyberspace, geospace and space. So how do nations or any of its components develop resilience towards such cascading security disasters with CGS interconnectivity when we don't have that framework? And that is my biggest concern.
1: I think this is the idea, again, that you know, we have a model that we could use which is something like the Federal Reserve Bank model, where we have private firms cooperating, sharing information, working together in a framework that the government operates, so that the regulations are coming with their knowledge and also with their input, but also the larger process, where are they go and where's the field going to go, comes also through this communication. know, you can think about this as an interaction over time where those firms learn to trust each other and the government. If the first time that we're talking is during a disaster, it's very hard to build trust. It's very hard to know your working style. It's very hard to think about, can I trust if I hear from you with some promise for a future? But I think what you see from the Federal Reserve is, over time, these banks and firms have built trust in the system and each other. So if there is a crisis, they can quickly meet. I've met you before. We've worked together during normal time. We often call this sort of peace time versus wartime interaction. You don't want to be meeting someone for the first time during the war. You want to have those interactions well beforehand. This is, this is the moment I think we could talk about things like conferences, workshops, symposia, broader-based thinking, these kind of podcasts. What can we do to get the idea out there? That it's not just one firm facing a challenge. It's probably that firm, which relies on a number of other firms nearby, and then there are tens of thousands of other firms like that firm facing the same challenge, which you could learn from if they actually had the interest and trust to share information. And I think this happens in academia as well. Oftentimes, someone will get a new data set, some new information. They'll be very reluctant to share that. They're afraid of being scooped. They're afraid of someone else taking their information. You know, part of my training in graduate school was the idea that the data that I collect should be open, should be available to people. And my students and I both use open source repositories. So when you build a new paper, we build a new data set, that becomes public to other people to test out, to, to use, to, to see if I'm telling the truth. I think this is a really important moment right? in our our time. It's so easy to share data. It's so easy to think about that. We have to have the political will and the interest in doing so. If we think that sharing data with you will be a good thing, in academia for example, we found people who share their data, their results are replicated and they get more citations, which is one measure in academia of success. So in that case, if you think and you know that sharing and being more transparent gets you better outcomes, you're more likely to do so. If firms believed their overall outcomes would be better if they were transparent, open in the communication. Maybe they'd open up more often. And we mentioned before, people not even talking about the cyber breaches that they've had. Sharing that information can be so critical in establishing a pattern. What pattern are we seeing in the field? If I'm afraid to share with you what's going on, it's impossible to see the broader pattern.
0: Yes, very true. I mean, uh, that that need is there, we do need to, while there are, you know, all these discussions are happening in academia, in conferences, uh, on the uh, shows like, you know, programs like Risk Roundup, where we are trying to create education awareness across nations for risk, you know, that we are facing from cyberspace, geospace, and space. There are many, many efforts going on. And we are not the only ones, there are many others who are also trying to uh, create the same education and awareness, but the biggest challenge in making critical infrastructure in cyberspace, geospace and space resilient is managing their complexities, interconnectedness and interdependent risk by proactively addressing those risks, adopting effective resilience techniques and resolving problems through cooperation. We need collective intelligence. There is so, it is so important that we develop, uh, we create that fundamental framework and structure and the system where we can have that uh, collective risk intelligence. Now, I, as far as my organization goes, we would like to create that blockchain-based integrated cyberspace, geospace, space risk management framework. But this is not just, you know, that uh, we would like to create that and we develop that uh, technological ability. It is about how to make each and every organization, each and every entity across NGA, IOA, get on that framework so this is anybody can build the framework i could build that framework but how do we develop that we cannot i'm not sure whether you know mandatory approach would be you know work here but how do we make everyone willingly share their risk share their intelligence share their information because we while capitalistic system we know requires that competitive nature and everyone wants to compete and you know they don't want to share their intelligence with the competitors, we probably need to move towards conscious capitalistic system where we while we are, uh, want to create profit where we want to, you know, make uh, our organizations better and make more profits and make more mm-hmm. revenues and, you know, be more successful. We also want to make sure mm-hmm. that if we know some, something, if we have an intelligence that, you know, we know that is going to destroy another organization, then we should, you know, share that information. So I think getting to that point is going to be a very complex challenge.
1: I think this is the idea we said before, but the social infrastructure. And here's here's a moment where typically an investor, a manager, a firm, I think about their jobs only in terms of the things that they own, the resources they have, the capital they have, the computers, the networks. But the reality is for many of us, whether it's in academia or the public sector or the private sector, it's the social connections that determine what we do with that information and what we do with those resources. So if I've been socialized to believe as a student as a professor, as a researcher, that sharing data is important and I'll train other people around me to do the same thing. If firms in cybersecurity, if firms in physical resilience and infrastructure share information, even embarrassing information, they're trained that way, they see the benefits from that, and you begin to create a new norm, a new way of thinking about things. And the reality is norms change very slowly. Think about any number of issues in North America. Uh, The civil rights movement in the 1960s, you know, 70 years ago, African-Americans and white Americans didn't share the same kind of rights and lives, even if we do now, I'm not even sure. Um, You know, women's rights as well took a long time, voting rights. Those problems took in literally dozens and dozens of, of years of fighting and contestation. So I think here too, if we think that there should be a new norm, there is to say if resilience should be the new paradigm we should use, if resilience is the new framework we want to use, convincing people won't be so easy as one podcast, one paper, one conference. It'll take socialization, it'll take training for students, it'll take new classes, it'll take a new set of structures. And again, part of that is people seeing benefits from that behavior. If I take on a resilient perspective and I see when that disaster strikes, when the terrorist strikes, my organization, my firm, my country does better, I'll say to people, look, you know, this is what happened to me. The reason I was able to bounce back after Hurricane New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina, was because I had resilience for the following processes. Or my firm survived the data breach because we had the following things in mind. That idea will slowly take root. We see this happen all the time when old norms, again, whether it's about civil rights, women's rights are shifted over time. We can do the same thing in the field, but it will take that kind of push. It won't be so easy. There's no natural way to do it. It really would take us thinking through as leaders what do we think it should look like? What should North America look like or India or Japan? What should these countries be doing to ensure that their futures are ones that are safe and secure and resilient against all different kinds of threats?
0: Very true. And it's going to take time. You're absolutely right about that. Now, Apart from that need for collective intelligence and developing in, uh, uh, the fundamental framework or system on which you know, people can uh, share that intelligence, those concerns are there but there's also another concern that the focus towards resilience is more on technology the approach should not only cover just technology infrastructure but also people processes and communication is that a fair concern by everyone
1: i think i think the danger is that in this era when everyone has a cell phone everyone has Email and Twitter, Instagram, and we have the social media, I think the challenge is we often assume the solutions will be based in technology. Some new app, some new program, some new process. I think the reality is my own research, especially here in North America and in Japan, has shown over and over again those social infrastructure, the cohesion, trust, transparency, interaction, those aspects of human behavior matter a lot more for things like surviving a disaster, building back quickly, getting resources, than let's say having some new app or some new cell phone or whatever. And I'll just give an example. We studied in Japan why different, different communities along the coast of Japan hit by the tsunami had very different levels of survival. Some had everyone survive and some of as many as one in 10 people who were killed by the tsunami. Huge disparities there. And we thought, well, maybe it's the height of the tsunami, maybe it's wealth, maybe it's the population density. None of those explanations actually explained why some communities had better outcomes than others. The best explanation that we found was social ties. Communities with more trust, more interaction, who shared information before the tsunami, who knocked on the doors or their neighbors helped them get out, Those communities survived in better numbers over and over again. We're talking about 180 cities in our data set that we looked at. We saw the same kind of pattern in the process of long-term recovery. Individuals who fled from their cities, individuals who had to leave because of radioactive contamination, their recoveries were not driven by wealth or by their health or by by their, their local money. It was driven by the connections that they had. Individuals who had more stability and friendships, who had more neighbors that they knew, Those people had better able to deal with stress, anxiety, and depression than similar people with fewer connections. So again, we might have thought, oh, it just matters how much money you have, or it only matters if you you live in an expensive city. Those are actually not accurate. Our best predictors of recovery during a tsunami or during an evacuation process don't come from technology, don't come from wealth. They really come from the kind of old-fashioned ideas of communication, interaction, and trust.
0: Yes, very true. The interaction and trust, that is the foundation. Uh, The collective intelligence, collective ability to share their thoughts, share the understanding, share the and develop the trust is going to be uh, the fundamental foundation that we will need to develop. Now, if you are evaluating any resilience, Across industry or uh, resili- the state of resilience of any uh, nation or industry or even the global you know infrastructure, what are the different variables you would consider when you evaluate the macro level dimensions of risk and resilience
1: so we definitely want to think through a number of different ideas, so one of course would be the physical infrastructure you know. Are they using old or new systems? Have they been upgraded and maintained, whether it's a bridge, for example, or a company's fiber optic cables? So that, that's one obvious question to look at. We also look at governance. We think this is a really important aspect. Uh, to what degree, for example, are, are, are decisions being made in a clever way, in, a, in an effective way, in a way that brings an input. And we talked before about decision makers being isolated, uh, individuals at the top of an organization and individual at the top of a firm. We don't actually have feedback coming to them from those at the bottom. That's really dangerous. Uh, and If you want to think about that right now, for example, we've heard reports under the Trump administration that many State Department employees are not having their voices heard about effective ways to handle whether it's things like negotiation or terrorism or countering violent extremism, that input is not getting to the top. That's a very dangerous situation. Uh, so we think governance matters just as much. And then we've been talking about the social infrastructure as well. How are individuals connected? Is there trust in the firm? If there's a problem in a community, if there's a problem in a, in a public organization, how do they solve that problem? And what we've seen is that effective communities, communities with open seat, open transparency, and trust, they can solve their own problems very well. Communities that aren't so trusting, they don't have those kind of ties, often to go to an outside party. So for example, if, if my neighbor is playing music loudly or I'm having a problem, I might go to the police rather than going and talk to them directly. Uh, if a firm is having problems with a supplier, it might go to a lawyer rather than talking with them about fixing the problem. We can measure pretty easily how often are they using these, let's call them workarounds to solve problems as opposed to solving them internally. So I think all those three aspects uh, in terms of these firms physical and social infrastructure, but also governance, are really important parts.
0: Yes, very true. Now, your organization, your institute is also working aggressively towards uh, uh, developing resilience and uh, creating the ecosystem around it. What are the specific initiatives that you all are working on that our global viewers and listeners should be aware about? So we're really
1: excited. We have a new physical structure, uh, the Global Resilience Institute here at Northeastern. And we've brought together people from across the university. So we have engineering, computer science, health science, social sciences as well, working on a variety of interesting problems, uh, ranging from questions like, how will Portland or Seattle survive a massive tsunami, which we think is likely, to very focused questions about infrastructure and electricity. How will the grid in North America survive a brownout or an EMP, what can we do? socially and physically, even the transportation questions. How do we have things like buses and trains keep running during a massive snowstorm or a hurricane-sandy like scenario? So our, our approach to this is always want disciplinary. We're bringing in social scientists, physical scientists, public policy experts to talk to each other. Unfortunately, as you mentioned before, there are these silos. Even in research and academia, I might solve a problem using only my own tools and not think through how would someone from the social sciences, the life sciences, public policy handle the problem. So GRI, our new perspective, is based on multidisciplinary approaches, teams that work across units. We're also trying to reach out across not only Boston where we're physically located, but across North America and Europe and Asia as well. And part of our larger term goal here is bringing in teams of scholars with specific skill sets, maybe computer modeling, simulation, and climate change experts to work together on one problem. What what, what kind of challenges might we see in Boston's sea level change over time? So thinking through this from a modeling perspective, from a public policy perspective, but also from a physical engineering perspective, what would buildings need to look like under the Boston waterfront? What kind of governance do we need to make sure citizens know the kind of risks might face. You turn Boston into like a Venice open in the front so water can get through or use Denmark for example uh, using water parks where water can flood deliberately during a massive overtide. So I think the, the nifty aspect of our center is we're bringing in students, scholars, practitioners together across teams and across areas to think through not just one kind of problem but multiple types of threats that we face.
0: That's great. So now I in the beginning, we I mentioned about some of the books that you have written. So would you like to share information to our global viewers and listeners if they're interested in those books? Where can they go purchase it? And if there are any other books that you are uh, in the process of writing and publishing?
1: Thank you. Yes, so I would say uh, my books I would encourage them to read would be Building Resilience, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other on books and booksellers. It's looking at this question of how do we have a broader understanding of how communities bounce back from these kinds of challenges, whether it's tsunami, an earthquake, or flooding. Uh, I have a new book uh, that's under review right now on Japan's 311 Disasters, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns. Hopefully it'll be coming out next year as well and uh, readers who want to have a whole website of free articles and data available. If they just Google my name, Daniel Aldrich, D-A-N-I-E-L-A-L-D-R-I-C-H, they can find a number of different sites that have data they can use and test out these theories we've been talking about.
0: Wonderful, so thank you, Professor Aldrich, for participating in Risk Roundup today, and we appreciate your thoughtful insight on risk, resilience, and security, and our global viewers and listeners. We benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the complex challenges facing nations to be resilient so even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to understand and develop resilience towards their initiative industries or nations based on the discussion we had today this risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that thank you so much for having me wonderful so as risk resilience and recovery are slowly but steadily becoming an integral component of risk oversight Nations that are able to balance and manage not only independent tactical, operational and strategic security risk, but also interconnected and interdependent CTS security risk, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space security risk that transcends their traditional boundaries will move ahead of competitors that cannot. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NG, CG, as mean, nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk group believe that. Risk management, security, and peace, they work together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict, and it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain. Until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk of videos or hear the risk of podcasts, please go to riskpolicy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Rizkandup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.